My name is Jonathan Randall. Uh, I serve on staff here at City Light, and it is good to be with you if you're in the room or you are tuning in on the live stream. I do want to welcome you officially to our Good Friday gathering. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to John chapter 19. John chapter 19 is where we're going to be tonight. Well, as I said, uh, tonight is Good Friday. What is Good Friday? Good Friday is when the church traditionally celebrates or takes a look at the crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ. And if I'm honest, truth be told, I've always been puzzled, why is it called Good Friday? I literally went to the interwebs this week, tried to look that up. It seemed to be a dead end. I didn't find much information. Why do they call it Good Friday? What makes this day good? Because let's be honest, there's some tension, right? How can a gruesome slaughtering of Jesus Christ on a tree actually be good? How can the truly innocent one who died a criminal's death be good? How can the death of, of the Son of God be good? How can you call Good Friday and all that went on on that day, how can you call it good? Well, allow me to answer that question this way. Good Friday is good because on that day, Jesus Christ on the cross triumphantly said, I will no longer allow evil to run this world. I am going to stake my claim over Satan, sin, and death. I'm going to forgive the sins of rebellion, pride, and idolatry. On the cross, Jesus spiritually deposits into our spiritual bank account the riches of his grace. He clothes us in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, and he heals all that would make us broken. On the cross, Jesus Christ saves us from the wrath of God, and he restores us to a right relationship with God. On the cross, Jesus tears down anything that would divide us. He protects us from anything that could threaten us. And he provides all things for us. On the cross, Jesus makes us spiritually alive. He secures for us eternal life. He grants us new desires to live for God. On the cross, Jesus grants us the spiritual citizenship of heaven. He offers us adoption into the family of God. He allows us to partake of the glory of God. On the cross, what we see is the magnificent plan of a father who loved his creation so much that he was willing to bankrupt heaven in order to redeem it. We also see the perfect obedience of the son who willingly went to the cross. He was not forced to go there. He willingly said, Father, I will complete your plan. And we see the Holy Spirit actually empower Jesus to accomplish for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. Do I need to go further? Did we forget how to say amen in the church? Good Friday is good because it is the exclamation point of history that says there is only one who is good, and it's Jesus Christ. And any hope we have for goodness in our lives is bound up on Calvary. However, the question I have for us tonight is this. Is Good Friday good enough? Is Good Friday good enough for you and for me? Because I'll be honest, as I was reflecting on this scripture this week, 
I was a bit stunned when I felt the Holy Spirit gently speak to me saying, John, perhaps you've always puzzled over why this day is Good Friday because you actually don't believe it's good enough. It's like I believe that the cross is is good enough to get me out of hell and into heaven. But when I take a look at my life and I see that I'm still struggling with sin, that I still have the same temptations that I did last year, it's like, God, do I believe that the cross is good enough to make me holy? It's like I I believe that the cross is good enough to save me from the wrath of God. but, But sometimes I'm like, God, is it good enough to redeem all of creation? Because if 2020 has taught me anything, things seem to be getting worse, not better. I believe the cross is good enough to offer eternal life. But why am I so often distracted looking for the good life in my retirement account? Or on a Zillow app for a next house or the next vacation? Thinking that's where goodness really lies. City Light and Providence Church. As we open up the scriptures here tonight, here's my hope and my prayer. My hope is not that we just unpack a familiar story. We go home and watch The Passion of the Christ. We hang out with some family. We do an Easter egg hunt and we call it good. My hope and my prayer is that tonight we will see God's goodness on this Good Friday. And that on the cross we might receive all that Jesus has given to us. And that we would leave this place truly believing that the cross is actually good enough. So hopefully you found your place in John chapter 19. I have three verses. Three verses that I want to cover tonight. This is God's word for us. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. God's word for us tonight. Based on these verses, I have three considerations that I want us to, to ponder that, I, that will hopefully show why the cross is good enough for me and for you. The first is this, the fulfillment of the cross. The fulfillment of the cross. In verse 28, we see this little statement, and it's put in parentheses in some of your versions. It says, to fulfill the scriptures. You'll actually see that phrase four different times in John 19 alone. And if you look at the passion story and all the other gospels, it's, it's littered with this phrase, something to the akin of, this was to fulfill the scriptures. This happened to fulfill the word of God. In doing this, he fulfilled the scriptures. In fact, the, the whole passion story is bookended on both sides with this idea of the fulfillment of scriptures. When, when Jesus is arrested in the garden, he says this, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then here in John 19, the very last words of Jesus on the cross, he says this was done to fulfill the scriptures. Now the million dollar question is, Why do the gospel writers seem to go out of their way, especially on the details of the cross? Why do they seem to go out of their way to say over and over and over again that what you're reading, this story, is a fulfillment of 
the scriptures? Well, in part, I think it's done so that we understand that the Old Testament is true. But I think it shows a bigger purpose. I think it shows to sh- or goes to show us that there wasn't one instant, there wasn't one nanosecond, there wasn't one fraction of a moment where God wasn't completely and utterly in control on the cross. Guys, the cross was not some plan B. This is not some side hustle for God. God's not making up for lost time. He didn't let history go off the rails. When he speaks, his word comes to fulfillment. The scriptures actually say that before the foundations of the world, there was a plan that involved God saving and redeeming the world. He has always been in control. He's in control right now, and he will be in control tomorrow and off into eternity. Because when John 19, 28 says, to fulfill the scriptures, it's as if the gospel writers are placing a huge stamp across your Bible saying, God was in control right here. God was in control of it all. We need to see this because I don't know about you, but one of my greatest struggles is to believe that God is in control. Like, can we just be honest here for a moment? Isn't it easy just to look out into our world, to to open up our news, to go on social media, and that's just on a Monday, and at least pause and hesitate and go, God, are you really in control? Do you really have this? This is the time of year where everybody's into March Madness, uh, and I'm not even a basketball fan, and I'm into March Madness. Uh, every year I'm filling out uh, a bracket. I don't know if you guys saw that UCLA-Michigan game. It was something else. You can't miss the last eight shots, Michigan. What's wrong with you? Don't you know that you're going to blow up my bracket, and I'm going to lose with all the other City Light pastors, and it's not going to be fun? Um, by the way, don't you love how we, like, complain these guys have prepared their whole lives for this, and we're, like, going to complain over a piece of paper that took us, like, two minutes uh, to fill out when they lose. Uh, but I love the brackets because it's so unpredictable. Every time I, I come to uh, College Hoops and March Madness, uh, I'm just hoping this is going to be the year where I'm going to pick that unforeseen upset, or I'm going to pick the Elite Eight all correctly, or, or maybe I'm going to get the whole bracket right, and I'll get some of Warren Buffett's money. But... Uh, Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. I share this because, if I'm honest, often I treat God the same way that I treat the brackets. I look at God, how I fill out the college bracket, I think God conducts history that way. Is he really in control? Or is he just playing the odds? Maybe if he knows enough, history will play out the way that he's planned it. So often I look at the unpredictability of my life and I wonder, God, my life kind of looks like the college basketball tournament bracket. Are you really in control of this thing? I wonder if you can relate. How many of us didn't plan to still be single, to still be stuck in a job, to still receive that diagnosis, to get the news that a loved one has died? If we're actually honest with ourselves, at our worst, most unpredictable moments in life, we are left wondering with the nagging question, God, are you really in control? But church, here's the truth. God is not a math wizard 
He's not treating your life like the tournament bracket, playing the odds, hoping it all turns out right. He's the sovereign one of the universe, and he holds your life in his hand. And not only does he know enough to take care of you, he's good enough to take care of you. And you might be wondering, John, how can you possibly say that? How do you know? Because John 19. John 19 says that on the cross, the scriptures are fulfilled. If God is in control at the worst moment in human history, the death of the Son of God, you don't get a worse moment than that in human history. The truly innocent one, slaughtered by wicked creation, worst moment in human history, and yet God's control is on full display. Over and over again, we see the scripture saying, this was fulfilled, this was fulfilled. God is in control on the cross. And if he's good enough to be in control on the cross, the worst moment in human history, he's good enough to be in control in your worst moment in your life. I think this statement to fulfill the scriptures is repeated so often throughout the end of Jesus' life because it's actually hard for us to learn this. It's hard for us to trust that God is in control, especially when it looks like he's not. And I love that Jesus provides an example of what this looks like here in his final moments. Picture Jesus here. He's on the cross. He's abandoned by his closest friends. He's bleeding out from the beatings. Nails have pierced his hands. There's a crown of thorns on his head. All he hears is, mocking from those who are killing him and silence from heaven, the one he wants to speak. And yet what do we find coming out of the mouth of Jesus? It's scripture. It's the Bible. Jesus was so steeped, so in tune with scriptures, it's as if you were to prick him and he would bleed Bible verses. Why does Jesus quote the Bible with his last words? It's because at his worst moment, when the sins of humanity were laid upon him, when the perfect relationship that he had with the Father was shattered, and he went into the unpredictability of death, he still believed God's word. He still believed that God's word was true and that God was in control. May the scriptures be to us our constant reminder that God is in control. For all the times we have failed to trust that God was in control, may we look to Jesus who made it to the end of his life still believing that God's word was true. The cross shows us that Good Friday is good because God is faithful to his word. The second consideration that shows why the cross is good enough is this. The fullness of the cross the fullness of the cross. Verse 28, it ends with Jesus saying this statement, I thirst. Then we uh, read in verse 29, they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, before I unpack this statement, I want to acknowledge that if you read the gospel accounts, uh, you'll notice that there's parts where Jesus is offered uh, another wine. It's a wine that is mixed with gall or uh, myrrh. And um, that was actually something Jesus refused. And that wine uh, would actually have been a painkiller or a sedative. And so Jesus is actually refusing that. But that's not the wine that we read about in this section. In this section, Jesus is asking for something to drink. He's, he's saying he's thirsty, and the, what, what he's given is sour wine. 
Sour wine uh, would have been something that the Roman soldiers drank because it was cheap. And so they would have given Jesus um, almost a second wind, almost a clarity of mind. It wouldn't have been a a painkiller. It actually would have enlivened him for a second wind and kept him alive by doing that. So catch this here. Not only does Jesus reject the painkillers, but he's also prolonging his own death. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm going to experience all of it. I'm going to pay for every last sin. The debt will be paid in full. But what I really want us to see is this. That was just for free. It's not really part of the sermon. What I really want us to see is this. How remarkable is it that Jesus says, I thirst? That's a fascinating statement in the gospel of John. Because see, earlier in John's gospel, there's this story where Jesus approaches this woman at a well. And this woman is a social outcast because not only is she a minority, but she also is looking for identity and purpose in all the wrong places. She is sleeping around with several different men. And Jesus begins to have this conversation with her about her ultimate identity and saying, hey, it's not found in your family background. It's not found in the arms of a lover. It's actually found in worshiping God through the Holy Spirit. But then Jesus has this fascinating statement in John 13 through 14, or John chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. He says this, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Put, just put yourself at the cross here for a moment. Forget that you know the end of the story for a moment. Ask yourself this question. How can the one who promised living water and no more thirst be at the end of his life crying out, I'm thirsty? How can the one who promised eternal life be dying? Let me answer the question this way. The biblical writers use the imagery of thirstiness to describe their need for God. what, What we believe as Christians is that we don't just believe in God, but that we were created to desire and need God, much like your body needs water. That is your identity. That's actually the very meaning of eternal life. John's gospel says eternal life is not something that you experience when you die and go off to la-la land in heaven somewhere while God blows up the earth. No, you can actually experience eternal life right now because John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life that you may know the one true God and his son whom he has sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is actually to be created in a relationship with God, to thirst after him, to need and desire him. That's what you were created for. That's your identity. But here's the problem. You and I try to fill that need everywhere else other than God. We run to other things to satisfy our spiritual thirst. Instead of going to the well of God, we run to other wells, such as money, sex, family, personal success. The list goes on and on and on. And when we do actually try to chase these things down to satisfy our spiritual thirst, we end up spiritually parched. We end up spiritually dry. We end up dying because we're trying to find satisfaction in something that doesn't satisfy. 
on the cross, what we see happening is that Jesus isn't just experiencing physical thirst. That's true. He, did, he was feeling, uh, experiencing physical thirst. But what we really see happening is that Jesus is taking on our spiritual dryness. He's taking on our spiritual death. He's taking on the agonies of hell itself so that we could have his living water. So that we could have his spiritual life. I have four daughters and I've discovered uh, that there is this little ritual that we do every night at 8 o'clock p.m. when we put them down to bed. And this little ritual is called, let's ask daddy 50 times for a drink of water before we actually go to bed. I don't know if you're a parent and have experienced this before, uh, but you'd think the Randall household was like a desert and that we were rationing off water. Um, like it is, it is just crazy at my house when it comes to bedtime. My kids are just suddenly so thirsty. And, and here's the thing. I'm onto their scheme. What they're doing is they're trying to procrastinate bedtime. That's, that's really what's going on here. Like I know this because my middle child came up to me the other day and was like, hey, I have to get a drink of water for the baby. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. The baby's been asleep for like an hour and a half, right? Um, they, they have this game. I'm onto them. But, but here's the thing about me as their dad. There isn't one time where I won't give my kid a drink of water. Even when they have faulty reasons for asking, I will still give them a drink of water. Every night when they ask for a drink, I'm going to get up, I'm going to get a cup, I'm going to pour a glass of water, and I'm going to give them a drink. On the cross, when Jesus cried out, I thirst, what happened? The soldiers are the ones who responded. And they mocked him by giving him sour wine. And where is his father? The one that he was in perfect relationship with. He's silent. Oh, sure, Jesus was physically thirsty. That's true. But I'm convinced on the cross, Jesus was spiritually thirsty in that moment because he was experiencing the eternal flames of God's wrath. And when he called out for the drops of living water to fall from heaven, the only thing he received was silence, was dryness, was parchedness, was death. If anyone had a right to ask for a drink from his father, it was Jesus, and yet no living water falls for him. Why? Because Jesus was taking on the spiritual dryness for us so that you and me could receive the living water that Jesus had earned for us. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you are trying to satisfy your spiritual thirst with all the things of this world and it's leaving you dry and empty and unsatisfied, would you come to Jesus tonight? Would you see the living water that he provides for you on the cross? That he went through this spiritual dryness for you. Maybe you are here tonight and you are a Christian. But if you're honest, you've been trying to satisfy your spiritual thirst with Jesus and something else. Would you come to Jesus on the cross again tonight? Would you see that the living water he offers you is good enough by itself? It's better than anything this world has to offer. Jesus took on the full punishment for our sin and experienced the spiritual dryness of death and hell that we deserved so that we could have the fullness of eternal life found in the living water that Jesus offers through his own life. That is the fullness of the cross. 
The last consideration I have for us to see is that the cross, that, or the, uh, the last consideration I have for us to see that the cross is good enough is the finality of the cross, the finality of the cross. In verse 30, we have the very last words of Jesus. He says, it is finished. It is finished. Now, in the Greek language, that is actually one word. That is one word. I'm not even going to pronounce that. Tetelestai. That sounds right. Um, That is the, the Greek word. I did not major in Greek. But it's one word. And that word, as I looked it up, it means this. It means to accomplish or complete. In fact, it has the imagery of paying off a debt. When the bill comes, you would use this word. It is finished, meaning I have paid the bill. Think of those people who show up on Dave Ramsey's show and they do their debt-free scream and they yell, I'm debt-free. That's what Jesus is doing here on the cross. He's saying, it is finished. This isn't a cry of defeat. This is not a cry of emptiness. This is a cry of victory. This is a cry of saying, I have accomplished what my father set out for me to do. See, through the death of Jesus, Jesus defeated death. Through hell on the cross, he robbed the power of hell. Through a sacrifice made to be sin, he overthrew sin. Through giving up his own life, he unleashed eternal life. Through a broken relationship with the father, despite perfect obedience, he brought us a perfect relationship with God, despite our broken obedience. Because no historian worth their weight is going to tell you that Jesus didn't live and die. But the fundamental question for us tonight is, did Jesus accomplish anything in his living and in his dying? And the truth we claim as Christians is this, is that Jesus is more than just an example. He's more than just a good teacher. He's more than just a prophet. He's more than just a revolutionary. In Jesus, we see God in the flesh come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. May we not subtract or add to the work of Jesus. It is complete. It is accomplished. It is finished.